His love is large enough, wide enough, high enough, deep enough for all eternity, and millennia will not weary it of its power. Depravity will not empty it of His grace. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are continuing a series of studies in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Revelation chapter 8? And you'll find it on page 1921, 1921, right at the back of the church Bible that's provided for you. Over the last few weeks, we have been working our way through Revelation, and we'll continue that through February. This morning, we come to chapter 8. The Apostle John is writing, and he writes, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. If you were with us two weeks ago when we explored chapter 6, chapter 6, John had presented to us vision of God sitting upon His throne, and in His right hand was the scroll of all of history, what was, what is, and what is still to come. And attached to the scroll were seven seals. And in chapter 6 and into chapter 7, those seals are gradually snipped back and opened up. And there's that overwhelming sense of expectation, anticipation. Can't wait to see what happens when the final seal is broken. And then we'll know everything contained in Revelation. And so when you come to chapter 8, all of that sense of anticipation, that mounting sense that a climax is coming. And then chapter 8 begins. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then you think, okay, what happened 
to all of the symbolism and the imagery and what was taking place. What? For 30 minutes, nothing happens. Waiting around becomes a little awkward, doesn't it? You think, what is, what is going on? Now, in order to illustrate what's happening here, let me encourage you to use your imagination. And imagine it is the end of December, 31st of December. It is New Year's Eve, and you are in New York City. And you go with family and friends down to Times Square, and there is the ball sitting there, and you arrive a couple of hours early. There are TV cameras everywhere. There are tens of thousands of people waiting to welcome in the new year. And when it gets close to midnight, and you've only five seconds left, in bars and hotels and homes, television, on smartphones, internet, Across the world, people are waiting for the ball to drop, and the commentator says, five, four, three, two, one, ha, and nothing. And there's silence for half an hour. And you think, well, that was a bit of an anticlimax. You feel flat, and what's going on, and why didn't we celebrate, and all of that. That's a sense of what's happening in Revelation chapter 8 in those opening verses. Now, let's hold that thought. I promise I'll come back to it in the next couple of minutes. But you need to know a couple of interpretative principles for the book of Revelation. Hermeneutics is what New Testament scholars and theologians call the interpretation of Scripture, hermeneutics. So, hold your hermeneutics for a moment. We'll come back and look at the silence in heaven. But you do need to grasp this, that in the beginning of Revelation, John is taken up into heaven in his mind's eye, and it's almost as if he's squeezed into the edge in the throne room of God, and there is God on the throne, surrounded by countless millions of people we looked at last week, from every tribe and tongue. I better move away from here. I'm giving some of you anxiety by getting too close to the edge. Forgive me. And here is John, squeezed in, watching it all take place. Here is God on the throne, and John is focused on what was, what is, and what is still to come. The temptation for us is to look at Revelation as a chronology, or rather a calendar, of the future. And it's not only that. It is certainly that, but it's not only that. And there are three distinct sections in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 and 7 focus on the seven seals that were broken, and we're about to come to the seventh. In chapter 8 and following, there are seven angels and seven trumpets. And in chapter 16, there are seven bowls or seven large containers. And the sense of seven, seven, seven happens three times in the book of Revelation. And remember, John is showing what was, what is, and what is still to come. And at the end of each of the seven, 
another section opens up, and a new series of visions begin to unfold. So now that we've come to the seventh seal, it's now been opened, and there is silence in heaven. The first of the seven trumpets is about to be sounded. Here we see a literary device that reminds us of several things that the revelation contained in the book of Revelation is cyclical. In other words, you come to the end of seven, and then a new series of revelations continue, and you come to the end of the second seven, and a new series as well. And when John is writing here, he's reminding his original readers and us that history often goes in that cyclical nature. But in writing for us, he's telling us this, that revelation, although a chronology of what is still to come, it's also dealing with what was and what is, and even in the midst of the chaos and the hunger and the poverty and the economic meltdown and the violence and the war and the crisis across our world, revelation tells us one thing, that God is God, and He is almighty, and He is sovereign, and even in the midst of all of the pain and the violence and the death, He is still taking history and all of humanity and fashioning and shaping and driving it to His own purpose and plan. And even in the midst of it all, He is still answering prayer. He is still rescuing people. He is still drawing them to a saving love and faith in Himself. And He is still impacting and transforming individuals and societies and cultures. He is still in control. And that's why John went to great lengths in the early chapters to show God sitting on His throne. And please hear me when I say this. He is not sitting there biting his nails saying, why doesn't someone do something? Why doesn't someone intervene? Because in the midst of all of the pain and the mayhem and the chaos, he still lavishes his love and his grace upon humanity. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it tells us this, that God has the heart of the king held in his hand, and he leads and guides and directs. That's what Revelation tells us. Now, having said all of that, you may be sitting there this morning saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. But in preparation for this morning, I read chapters 8 and chapters 9. And quite honestly, Richard, there's not a lot of good news in chapters 8 and chapters 9. It is judgment. It is the wrath of God. You touched on it earlier when God is hurling His judgment and His fire upon the earth. And that is absolutely the case. Now, if you can hold on for one minute, let me answer the question of the silence in heaven, and then I promise I'll get to the wrath and the judgment. It's a little uncomfortable, and I'd rather not deal with it, but it's in the text, and we've got to face it. Now, having said all that I've said, why the silence? 
Why is there silence in heaven? Because the imagery and the symbolism there, and if you get the opportunity, again, read verses 3 and 4, when the angel steps up to the altar, and the imagery and symbolism is of incense going up towards God. And it's not just incense itself, because the angel takes the prayers of God's people and the incense of offering and sacrifice, puts them all together, and they go heavenward. And the lesson we need to take from this early section of Revelation is this. There is symbolic silence in heaven as God listens and listens intently to the cries of His children. That's what's going on. And notice it's only after the prayers enter the very throne room of God that God powerfully intervenes and intercedes on behalf of His children, and He powerfully takes action and goes to work. So, when you find yourself in a place of prayer, and you are grieving for the circumstances and the challenges and the messiness of your life, and you are heartbroken, and you're saying, Father, why don't you answer my prayer? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you intercede? And then when you stand back and look around our world, and your heart is broken, and you're thinking, Father, why don't you do something? Please come back now and rescue us from all this going on, from terrorist crisis to murder and mayhem and poverty and greed and injustice across our world. Father, what on earth are you doing? When you are there, remember Revelation 8, that God is interceding, that He is intervening, that He is taking action. That's what Revelation 8 teaches. Now, having said all of that, let's come back to the question of God's wrath and God's judgment, because it comes to the latter part of chapter 8 and into chapter 9. I want to pause and look at society and culture and three main kinds. There are more than three, but they usually fall into three classifications. And the first is this. In history, we have had what we call a synonymous culture, theo and self Theo for God, onimus for self. And or in essence, that's it. I don't let me get into the detail or I'll be here forever. Theonomous culture. And a theonomous culture basically claims this, that rooted in, ingrained, and embedded in a culture or a society are certain moral and spiritual values. And for the most part, the culture and society agree on what those values are. Now, in the West, we would use the phrase, we believe these truths to be self-evident. And as a nation, to some extent, we're still holding on to that principle. I think we hold on to the particulars of it, but we hold on to the principle. But our 
culture has so shifted, I'm not sure as a culture and a society we believe moral and spiritual values and standards to be self-evident. So that is first and foremost the theonomous culture. The second and middle culture is heteronymous. Now let me explain that. Heteronymous culture is this. When an elite at the top of the cultural tree, or an elite who determine for society what the moral and spiritual values of the culture should be, are determined by an elite. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you lived in communist Russia decades ago, it was the party, the communist party, who laid down the moral and supernatural values of the culture. You saw it under Joseph Stalin and his successors. You saw it under Mao Zedong in China and his successors. Adolf Hitler, not to the far left, the opposite, the far right, he and the Nazi party determined the moral and supernatural or spiritual values of the nation. That's what was going on. So it's set by an elite group at the top. If you're looking for a more contemporary uh, illustration, you may think of countries that are run by Islamic extremists. They will tell you what to wear and what not to wear, what you can eat and what you can't eat. They will tell you if you can drive a car or not drive a car, tell you whether you can get an education or not get an education. And that is the heteronymous culture. It's determined by folks at the top. A quickly reminder, the culture itself, we believe these to be self-evident, ingrained, everyone agrees, synonymous, heteronymous, is determined by an elite at the top. Now, in 21st century, here in the West, we have a third kind of culture, both in our society and in our communities. And that is what we call an autonomous culture. And basically, the autonomous culture says this. We are complicated, sophisticated adults who can determine our own standards of morals and spirituality. So each individual gets to set their own standards of morals and spirituality. And it's done on the basis of tolerance and inclusivity. And therefore, I don't get to tell you what to believe. You don't get to tell me what to believe. And we kind of manage along quite nicely. Thank you all the same. Now, in principle, you think that's a good, civilized, helpful way to go about it. In principle. But when you come to the particular and a subject rises to the surface for discussion, and perhaps that subject is the judgment of God, those who were autonomous ask you the question, and you come back and say, clear teaching of Scripture is that not only is God love and grace and mercy and kindness, not only does He impact the heart and mind and soul, not only does He transform you and bring you into an intimate relationship with Himself, all these characteristics are part and parcel of God's nature, 
but as well as love and grace and forgiveness and mercy, there is also holiness and justice, and with justice, judgment. The person over here who's happy with autonomous culture, everyone gets to set their own moral and supernatural standards, suddenly flips from being autonomous to the middle one, which was heteronomous and seeks to tell you that you are barbaric and seeks to tell you that you're primitive and it's archaic and you have no place in modern society. Do you see my point? This is where I want you to smile and say, yes, Richard. I've got it. One, two, three. Yes, Yes, Richard. I'm not convinced, but I'll go along with you anyway. Let me say it again. The person who was heteronomous, only the elite determine when you push back, excuse me, the autonomous, when you push back against that sort of thinking, they change from being autonomous to heteronomous and will seek to marginalize and minimize you. And this is why. Because when you set Christian moral and spiritual standards, you are therefore saying this matters. And you are then saying in the particular this, and this is appropriate for Sanctity of Life Month, because when the Christian church across our nation says this, that we believe life is sacred, that marriage is an unbreakable bond, and when you say life is sacred from the womb to the tomb, and everywhere in between, and no one, whether the Hollywood elite or the political elite or anyone else, takes the life of an unborn child for their own personal convenience, they should be utterly and unabashedly ashamed. And then they will move to, well, you are primitive, and you are barbaric. As soon as you set moral standards, you make yourself a target. And folks, please hear me when I say this. For all that we firmly believe and hold four square to the scriptural teaching of the love and grace and mercy and goodness of God, there is also the part of His character that focuses on justice and judgment. It does. And when you encourage a society and a culture to believe that taking the life of an innocent child in the womb is okay, you will face the judgment and the justice of Almighty God. You cannot minimize it. You cannot marginalize it. You can pretend it will not come, but Revelation tells us again and again and again and again that God in His love and grace has set moral standards for His people and for communities and for nations and for all of humanity, first century to the 21st century, and you treat God Himself with contempt tempt or disdain, you will have to answer to Him. Amen? Amen. The gospel is clear. Now, having said all of that, and it was throwing a lot at you, 
In the closing minutes, I also need you to hear this, because this is what I want you to take away. You'll be tempted only to remember the part on the various cultures and the justice and judgment. It's not a bad thing, but I also need you to remember this. We hold in tension the judgment and the justice of God along with His love and His grace. And if Revelation focuses in several of the chapters on the judgment and the justice of God, it also focuses on the eternal love of God. And hear this, the love of Christ is wide enough to embrace all of humanity, every tribe and tongue and nation that we looked at last Sunday morning is still a living reality. From Guatemala to New Guinea, from the Mississippi to Moscow, from Tokyo to Toronto, from Cape Town to New Delhi, His love is large enough, wide enough, high enough, deep enough for all eternity, and millennia will not weary it of its power. Depravity will not empty it of His grace and there is no barrier too high and no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great that His love and grace cannot strengthen and equip and enable us to come back to be the people we once were as individuals, as a community, as a state, and as a nation. Because remember this, Scripture is clear, and John tells us in every page of this book, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of His terrible swift sword, and His truth is marching on all that was, all that is, and all that still is, He sovereignly holds in His hands. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible challenge this morning, that when You call us to Yourself and transform us and forgive us, You call us to be people who are not only deeply in love with You, not only do we have the incredible privilege of walking with You each day, but You also call us to godly standards. And Father, we recognize that if we as the church do not speak up in this generation, who will? Who will? So enable us, please, by Your grace and Your mercy to have an influence on our own self first, on our families, our places of work, our community, our state, our nation, and our world. Father, allow us to belong to You, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.